Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a weekly podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Eleanor Langford, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the week's biggest political stories with fellow Politics Home reporters and special guests from across Westminster. I'm delighted to be joined by Labour's Shadow Attorney General, Emily Thornbury, and we've also got Politics Home's political editor, Adam Payne. We'll be discussing the latest Partygate drop and Downing Street's refusal to say whether receiving a police fine means you've broken the law. We'll also look at Rishi Sunak's grilling on cost of living and a landmark vote for women in the Commons. But let's begin with Partygate. The Met Police issued their first tranche of fixed penalty notices to Downing Street and Whitehall staff this week. Boris Johnson's spokesperson has confirmed that he is not among the 20 and there are still more fines to come. And we're not going to be getting the names of those who've been fined. But Emily, do you think Downing Street should release those names? No, I don't think we need to have that. I think we need to have the names of the elected politicians because they're accountable to the public. I think more important is the fact that Boris Johnson's staff are accepting that they have broken the law does seem to show that really, if anybody wanted to continue to debate this, the law has been broken. Why would you be accepting fixed penalty notices otherwise? And I think what they're trying to do now is they're trying to say that somehow or other it isn't important. But if you go back to the debate around the fixed penalty notices, what happened was was that Parliament, in passing this legislation, was passing really strict legislation about the lockdown, you know, making sure that it was enforced by introducing fixed penalty notices. Now, we weren't in a position to march people off to court because the courts were largely closed and you needed to have a mechanism to make that law work. There had to be penalties attached to it. And the government was saying in Parliament at the time, these are extraordinary measures for extraordinary times. This is why we have to do it. We wouldn't be doing it otherwise. It's instead of an ordinary criminal penalty, etc, etc. And now they say, oh, but it isn't an ordinary criminal penalty. Therefore, it doesn't matter. Well, it does matter. What they need to do is listen to the public. The public certainly think that it matters. But a lot of MPs we know seem to think that the war in Ukraine has wiped out the importance of these fines. And uh, I know, Adam, you were talking to some MPs this week. What, what were they saying about these fines? Well, you found one or two Conservative MPs who made the point that what's happening in Ukraine clearly is terrible. But just because it's on a bigger scale to Partygate doesn't mean that Partygate's not important. But they were very much in the minority, whereas most Conservative MPs you spoke to said, look, we've got far bigger fish to fry in what's going on in Eastern Europe, so can't we all just move on from Partygate? And that seems to be the line being trotted out by Johnson's biggest supporters and his parliamentary party, but Downing Street as well. I mean, Emily, does that square with what you hear on the doorsteps. I know you've been out campaigning ahead of the local elections. So I don't think it does. Of course, the war in Ukraine is incredibly important. It's important for the sake of democracy. It's important that we stand by Ukraine, that we do everything that we can to support them. Of course, all of this is incredibly important. But so is democracy in our own country. And democracy in our own country has a pillar, which is called the rule of law. And that rule of law means that the rules apply to everybody equally, no matter who you are. You cannot be a god. You know, even if you're prime minister, you know, the law still applies to you. And if you have broken it, then you should pay the consequences. And if you lie about it and you break the rules and you go into parliament and you say, I'm shocked, shocked to hear that this has happened. I didn't realise it was going on and I didn't know and there's certainly no rules have been broken and there were no parties and just a lie to us, then that is serious and he should pay the consequences him and he should resign. If he wants to stretch it out and he doesn't want to take responsibility, there's nothing that we in the Labour Party can do about it because they've got a majority of 80. 
all we can do is keep making the point that the public are not having any of it. And if they want to carry on behaving like this, then frankly, it is up to them. But it's not to say that this isn't profoundly wrong, what is going on. We really shouldn't have a prime minister that people don't trust. Do you think it was a bad taste that all the Tories, they had their big dinner, making up for those two cancelled away weekends just over the road from Westminster on the same day these fines came out? I think walking past the families was the worst bit. Yes, yeah. Walking past the COVID families. The COVID bereaved group protested outside. And distasteful, I thought. And then for the Prime Minister to make a sort of rather horrible trans joke at the beginning on the same day that uh, a member of of the backbench Tories MPs came out and said that that, uh, he was trans. Horrible, really distasteful. The whole thing's really distasteful. Yeah, it was just incredibly bad look. And now we're waiting for more police stuff. Boris could be among the next lot. We don't know yet. Or there could be huge fines. I mean, how bad, Adam, could this get for Boris Johnson? Well, speaking to Conservative MPs this week, even Conservative MPs who he won't name, but just a few weeks ago were incredibly critical of the Prime Minister calling for him to go, were at least in what they said to us, were pretty unmoved by the Met's announcement earlier this week. I mean, I think you you should take a step back. What we're talking about here is people at the heart of government being found to have broken laws set by the government itself. It's a pretty extraordinary situation the government's found itself in. However, most Tory MPs are relatively unmoved by the announcement. However, if the Prime Minister, and it's a big if, if the Prime Minister is among those people who in future waves of fixed penalty notices is found to have broken a law. I do think the mood in the Tory party will switch. I was speaking to a Conservative MP earlier this week who, I think to paraphrase, said the time might not be now, but that doesn't mean the time has gone forever. And we've seen in the last few months how quickly the narrative can shift in Westminster. So if the PM is found to be among the next few waves of FPNs, I think it could be in very choppy waters again. But I think there's two things, right? I think the first is, I don't know whether there will be a fixed penalty notice issued against the Prime Minister or not, but there will be photographs. There's a whole cache of photographs. And the Metropolitan Police are incredibly leaky. So is number 10 Downing Street. I mean, the photos will come out. And I think when people have strong visual proof of the Prime Minister at parties being ambushed by cake or or whatever. And a lot of those photographs actually being taken by the vanity photographers that are being paid for by public money. It just makes it even more amazing. Anyway, you know, at the moment they're being held back, but at some stage they're going to come out. And I think that again will be incredibly damaging because that helps people to visualise. We're a visual culture. You see the Prime Minister breaking the law and you think, up and down the country, there are hundreds of thousands of people who have been prosecuted for much less than this, and the law has to apply to everybody equally. Emily, just to sort of focus on party gate a bit more on what was announced this week, we've had both the Justice Secretary Dominic Raab and the Trade Secretary Anne-Marie Trevelyan say on record that the Met issuing FPNs means it proves that COVID laws were broken. However, the PM's official spokesperson has refused to go that far and asked repeatedly this week whether they would endorse Rab's remarks. They would not do so. It's an incredibly surreal situation. What on earth is going on here? Please unpick this one. I mean, it's all a little bit Alice in Wonderland. As I said at the outset, the fact that Number 10 staff are accepting fixed penalty notices means that they are accepting that the law was broken, furthermore, that the law was broken by them. Otherwise, why would they accept a fixed penalty notice? So, yes, therefore, the law has been broken. 
presumably the Met are starting with the low-hanging fruit. They're starting with the people who accept, who admit that they have broken the law. And they then will have to move onwards to those who continue to say that they didn't break the law and were ambushed by cake or whatever it was. But the Met will need to be fairly systematic about it. I think what's interesting in this is that you're getting different ministers, you're getting ministers saying one thing, you're getting number 10 saying something else. Where is the lawyer in this? You know, the attorney general is the lawyer to the prime minister. So her job is to tell him how it is. In fact, frankly, the attorney general is the only person who can really say, and it is her duty to say, no prime minister. If the prime minister is going to do something unlawful, it's the, it is the duty of the AG to say you can't do this. Before he came, went to Parliament, if you remember, in the cold light of day, after Allegra Stratton had been caught on film and that had gone out, he thought very carefully about what he was going to say and he made a statement before Prime Minister's questions on the 8th of December in which he denied that anything wrong had happened. Before that had happened, on the morning that he was doing prep for PMQs, the person who walked up at Downing Street was the Attorney General. And she went in very publicly to give him advice before he went into Parliament. So what does she ask him? How does she establish whether or not he had broken the law or people had broken the law or the rules had been broken? You know, or any of the other things that he said then in Parliament. Was she in on that? Did she agree that that was the right thing to do? And what on what basis did she ever give him advice that that was okay? I think that she should tell us. And I also think that when there are cover-ups, whether it's... <sighs> Watergate, some people would say Iraq, you know, the Attorney General is always in the middle of this. The lawyer is always there because the lawyer has to give advice and the lawyer always kind of gets into trouble as well. But the lawyer on this occasion, you know, you can't see for dust. But, you know, you get all these other people fighting about what the law is and what the law says, and it's her job to tell us, well, why didn't she just tell us? What's the law? Has it been broken? Hasn't it been broken? You know, she should know. So do you think the Attorney General is currently failing to uphold her constitutional duties? Well, I think that she ought to answer these questions. I have a whole series of other things. I mean, I think on P&O, you know, when you get the Prime Minister turning up at Prime Minister's questions and telling us there will be prosecutions under this section, da, 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 this will happen, he says it three or four times, and it doesn't happen. And then we're told there's going to be a package of measures and that there could be limitless fines and they're all all over the place. They're all saying different things. I've asked the Attorney General, well, hello, what's the law? Your job, what's the law? Tell us what the law is. You know, give the you give the advice to the Prime Minister, give the advice to all of us. Let's have a definitive statement from you because I don't think the law is good enough when it comes to PNO. I think you can have this kind of pirate capitalism with nobody being able to do anything about it. And we need to strengthen the law, but let's have an agreement first on what the law is. And it's your job. Get on with it. On fixed penalty notices, because this jargon, if you want to describe it that way, clearly is coming up in the news a lot. But for some people, this might be a relatively new term. And indeed, Conservative MPs who were very supportive of the PM have almost tried to downplay the significance mm. of receiving an FPN. I think mm. Mark Jenkinson, the MP for Workington, tweeted as much at the height of Partygate. So what are we talking about here? Like, How serious is it if a government employee, particularly a high profile one, is receiving a fixed penalty notice? I think it's bad if government employees are breaking the laws that they've helped to introduce and they've helped to draft. But I think more important is if politicians, elected politicians, and we are responsible for what our staff do. We're the public face, we carry the can, we are the ones who are accountable. Then I speak as someone who's resigned myself. I just think it's something that you should do. And I just think that it's kind of, people expect it. 
and it helps to keep our politics clean. If we're breaking those rules, then it is very serious, particularly when they are rules that they have introduced themselves a short time before and they're expecting everybody. And they go out on front foot and they say, everyone must stick to these rules. And yet they don't expect those rules to apply to them. That is what the problem is. And that's why there should be serious consequences, in my view. And then to lie about it makes it even worse. And to continue to lie about it makes it even worse because it undermines the rule of law. You talked about elected politicians. You distinguish between elected politicians Mm. and officials. Mm. Should spads be named who receive FPNs? And do you think Carrie Johnson should be named? Obviously, she's not an employee of government, but she's a very high profile person. So one could argue there's a quite a compelling public interest defence there. Well, the difficult position that Carrie Johnson's in, in a way, I suppose, is that she has been making it perfectly clear that she has no political role. She has no role in government. She has no role of advising the prime minister. She is completely apolitical. That's what she says. And so if that's right, then if there are any so-called work events to which she attends, they're therefore not work events because she's there. I mean, she can't have it both ways. If there are fines that that occur because what's what's been going on in her flat, then I think that that may well be of relevance as well. But it's a difficult position. You know, I'm more interested in the elected politicians than anyone else. And remember this, Dominic Raab, when he was interviewed about Partygate, he said, oh, well, when I was in charge of number 10, when the prime minister was in hospital, there were no parties, there was no wine Friday, there was no alcohol drunk. The implication being clear that this comes from the top, and when he was in charge, it didn't happen. But of course, after the Prime Minister had come back, it started to happen again. And just finally, there's another element to this, which you've mentioned and which Labour's been pushing on and which Keir Starmer raised in PMQs, is the allegation that the PM misled the House in early December when he claimed at the dispatch box that all guidance was followed Mm. in Downing Street during lockdown. I understand that this point is something which makes a lot of Conservative MPs, at least privately for now, feel very uneasy. When Keir Starmer asked that question, did you spot any sort of uncomfortable-looking Tory MPs who might have been squirming in their their seats on Wednesday afternoon? Well, they have no answer to this. He's completely banged to rights. I mean, they were there when he said that the whole thing was a great surprise to him, that no rules had been broken, that there had been no parties. Mm -hmm. And yet we've had evidence that not only was there more than one party, there were many parties... But he was at them. For heaven's sake. It's his house. It's his office. They're his staff. Really, I'm so fed up with this. It's so obvious, you know, and frankly, out there, the public made up their mind months ago on this. But if they want to carry on dragging it out, then it's frankly is their lookout because public have moved on on this. This episode of The Rundown is going out as key changes likely to exacerbate the cost of living crisis come into effect, namely the rise in national insurance contributions and new much higher energy costs. So Monday feels like about a year ago now, but Sunak spent almost two hours justifying his position to the Treasury Committee on not raising public spending. Emily, do you think he was right to hold back? Yeah, no, I don't think he's right at all. I think that these are really difficult times and they have the levers of power. Why are they there? They're not there to be decorative. They're there to do the right thing at times of crisis like this. And there are things that they can do. And they just didn't seem to have any ideas. So we gave them some ideas. We said, you know, prices have gone up so much that you've been getting a lot more money in VAT. So cut VAT. That'll save a lot of money for people. Uh, The other thing you can do is because prices are so high on energy, you can have a windfall tax and then you can share that amongst people. That'd be £600 a household. 
We costed it all out. We sorted it all out for them. We handed it to them on a plate and said, here you are, here are some things you can do. And it's almost as though, because we suggested it, they've been absolutely setting their face against doing anything about this. And yet, people are seriously worried. And this is not a game. There are things that the government can do and should do. But instead, what they're doing is they're raising taxes. You couldn't make it up. It's just extraordinary how incompetent they're being and how thoughtless. It's as if they don't really understand how bad circumstances are for people. Yeah, and the, and the analysis that came out after the spring statement was all pretty damning. But, but Rishi's really been, he's really pushed back. Um, there's a story today in The Times saying that he viscerally hates the Office of Budget Responsibility because they said that living standards are going down. He doesn't agree. And it, it's a really fascinating position is that he's in, that he's so staunchly defending all the measures he's putting through. I'm biting my tongue, but I mean, quite frankly, living standards may not be going down for him, but they're going down for everybody else. And I think that's part of the problem is that he's completely out of touch. Well, I think with Sunak, he, I'd argue, has had perhaps the most difficult week or so of his political career in the sense that I don't think he's come under the sort of pressure which he has in the last week in the sense that his spring statement I remember bumping into him outside of 1922 and I asked him how it went and he said something like it's a good happy day he was pretty pleased with how it all went and then we woke up the next morning to those front pages and those think tank conclusions and the situation changed completely he's visibly looked quite annoyed and quite exasperated in interviews and then we had this extraordinary story on Thursday morning of allies of Sunak Treasury sources saying he viscerally hates um, the OBR and of course as well as that we have this very clear rift between Downing Street and the Treasury now playing out in the open and talk of Johnson perhaps moving Sunak to a different part of government in the summer. I mean Emily how would you assess the state of their relationship because obviously throughout political history in this country you have tension between the PM and Chancellor. We had it with Blair and Brown towards the end. Um, Hammond and May had a quite difficult relationship. Do you think this is to be expected or is their relationship abnormally strained at the moment? So they've always they have always had strains. If you if you think back, COVID regulations, you know, so Boris Johnson wanted to close down the economy Rishi Sunak didn't was the kind of way in which it seemed to be being played out. You remember at Christmas, Boris Johnson wanted to close down the economy again over Christmas and there were a group of of cabinet ministers against it and Rishi Sunak was sort of one of those. When there was uh, eat out to help out failed, Boris Johnson seemed to be, you know, there was a bit of kind of laughing at that. And so it goes on. And now we have, I think, quite obvious difficulties with a rotten spring statement that hasn't really helped anybody and there being no loyalty and no teamwork between the two of them and it's starting to play out you know in every other country you see these where there are these difficulties now with the cost of living you do have government kind of actually taking some measures some decent measures to help people but we don't have that in this country what we do have is a government like doing very little and yet still managing to fall out and the two at the top playing kind of like a sort of political power game who is most popular who's going to be most popular who can be blamed who can't be blamed we don't see either of those in other countries and that's what we're seeing here i know Keir on on wednesday mm-hmm. made, made the point that the income tax cut is coming in in, in 2024 mm-hmm. and was accusing the government of doing that to improve their electoral hopes. I mean, we know that they're waiting until October to do some of the measures. Rishi hinted that on Monday. Do you think that's right? Do you think it's fair of them to to wait? Is there any justification or is it just an election winning strategy? 
Yeah, I mean, it's obviously just playing games. It's not looking at the situation now and working out what the best thing to do is now in this current crisis. It's not really caring about people now. It's thinking, let's just save up a little bit of money so just before the election we can give everybody a, a tax cut and hope that everyone forgets how bad it was. And how is this going to play out on the doorstep? Uh, I know you've been doing some campaigning and there's, there's a lot more to come as we approach the local elections. Mm. Do you think this is going to play out really badly for the Conservative Party? Because of what we've been hearing from people on the doorstep, it's for that reason that we're putting the, the cost of living crisis front and centre of our election campaign and why we are making it clear to people that they're on, we're on their side. What, what have you been hearing so far? I know it's still early days, but what are people saying about the cost of living crisis when you speak to them? I had a woman come to see me with her water bill and she went through her money and what went in and what went out and she said, I can't afford water, what do I do? It really struck me, you know, because all the things that I would have said, you know, so, you know, you can get a meter. She'd, she'd got a meter. I mean, what had happened had been that she'd moved from a little flat into a house, which was great because she was terribly overcrowded. But now that she'd moved into appropriate accommodation for her family, now her water rates had gone up a lot. And that was a bump that she wasn't expecting. She just didn't have the money to cover it. Emily, I noticed in your answer just saying you said on your side. Yes. I think Keir used that this morning at the local elections party launch. Is that the party slogan going into... going yes. into? Um, can you explain what's the sort of message behind those three words? Well, I think it's in contrast to a government that simply isn't on their side. I think that people don't think that the government is listening to them or cares about them, that there's a lot of kind of game playing in Westminster. What's happening in terms of politics is not of any relevance to them and is not helping them out. And there's a contrast in the type of politics that we want to be involved in, which is listening to people, learning from people, and working out what the best way forward is, because we believe that politics can actually have a positive effect on people and can help transform people's lives. So for that reason, we're on people's side. I mean, I personally have had it as my own slogan and where I am ever since I was elected. It's an important thing to live by. We're on the side of, of ordinary people. They need, particularly at difficult times, to have someone to hold their hand, to give them a bump up. While all of this was going on, Rishi's drama, Partygate, there was an incredibly significant vote for women in Parliament on Wednesday. So during yeah. the pandemic, the Department of Health temporarily allowed early medical abortion pills to be taken at home, previously illegal to take the first pill outside a clinical setting. The government wanted to end that temporary measure in August, but an amendment to the Health and Care Bill passed in Parliament to make the measure permanent. This will reduce obstacles to early medical abortion, which is considered safer than the surgical procedure. But anti-abortion MPs and campaigners claim that keeping these at-home provisions presented safeguarding issues. But we heard uh, Labour MP Jess Phillips give an incredibly powerful speech challenging that evidence. Emily, what did you think of Jess Phillips' intervention? Yes, I think it was important because the organisations that are owe their existence to the need to protect particular groups. We're saying that, in fact, it is in the interests of women who are in controlling relationships or violent relationships for them to be able to have a variety of different ways in which they can have an abortion if they want to. And the evidence is there that if abortions are easier for women, they will have them earlier, and that is better in every way. It's, I think, in the interest of women to be able if they're going to have an abortion, if they can have an abortion at an early stage and have it at home, it's so much better for the woman. It's so much more supportive. It's so much easier. And that's what women want. So it had been introduced in all the all the nations, England, Wales and Scotland, um, during the pandemic. Wales and Scotland had decided to keep it. 
But England had decided that they were going to change it. We couldn't really understand why. But fortunately, we had the vote and it was one on 27. And so England has kind of levelled up to meet Wales and Scotland and uh, to ensure that we continue to, to give women decent rights. I was um, in the chamber and what happens normally, of course, with most votes is that they're whipped and a, a vote on something like abortion is a free vote. And so MPs who may have been preoccupied with other things that they do outside of the chamber may have heard the bell, run down to the chamber, not kind of quite twigged. This was a free vote and that they needed to make their mind up and may not even have thought about the issue or even known that this is what we were voting on until they arrive. And so at that point, you know, people tend to think, oh, right, well, I'm a conservative, I'll vote with the conservatives. Oh, look, it looks like the conservatives are going that way. And indeed, the front bench were going into the lobby to stop this right. But there were other conservatives in the lobby with us trying to ensure that we that we kept the right going. So there weren't whips, so you had to have sort of unofficial whips. So I was there as an unofficial whip going, pro-choice this way, rights of women this way, come on, <laughs> you know, and sort of kind of trying to usher people into the right lobby. And there were some, I won't say who it is, I don't want to embarrass them, but there were a couple of um, cabinet ministers who saw me and went, yeah, we're not voting. Because <laughs> they knew which way they were supposed to be voting. They were supposed to be voting against it. You know, the unofficial whip was that they were supposed to go vote against it, but they just couldn't. It reminded me a bit. I was uh, I was actually telling Jess in the lobby about this. When there had been the abortion votes before and uh, George Osborne had been in Parliament, he had gone up to me and said, OK, Emily, which way am I voting? So I've been his whip <laughs> on that occasion. <laughs> and um, our colleague Noah Hoffman has done some fantastic coverage uh, throughout this debate, really leading on that, and you can read all of that on our website. That's all we've got time for this week, but you can read more on all the biggest political stories at politicshome.com and by subscribing to our newsletter by clicking the link in the top right of our website. Thanks so much to our fantastic guests, Emily Thornbury, and to our political editor, Adam Payne. Our editor has been Laura Silver. You can follow them on Twitter at AdamPayne26 and LauraSilver underscore. And I'm at Eleanor Mia. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe wherever you get your podcast to keep up to date. If you've enjoyed it, then leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, reach out to us on Twitter at PoliticsHome or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, have a great weekend and be sure to listen again next week. I've been Eleanor Langford and this has been The Rundown. Mm-hmm.